Hi, good evening. Welcome back to another Eclipse Impact podcast. Tonight, we have a very special guest, Chin Li Jin, a founding member and the current chairperson of the Circular Business Economy Association. Hi, Li Jin. How are you? I'm good. Good. So tell me more about yourself and more about what ACMF Circular Economy does. Right. So hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Li Jin. And um, what I do as the senior managing partner of ACMF Circular Economy is basically to help businesses identify where there are opportunities um, for them to monetize um, from the circular economy. And for those of those who are ready to make that transition and transformation um, journey towards that circular business model, um, we actually provide business transformation services um, to help them move across profitably. And we do that with a model that we uh, call the TMAS revenue model, um, where we're basically trying to help businesses uh, identify whether there are ideas um, or um, strategies that they themselves uh, have thought of in making that transformation is actually something that can uh, provide them with, a, um, of course, a unique selling position. Um, or is it something that is um, what in Malaysia we would call shock sendiri, which is um, actually it's uh, overserved already and there's actually no, no big need um, from the client base to actually do that. Um, we also identified two uh, other quadrants um, where these businesses could be in, um, which is um, that it is uh, providing some sort of product in the underserved, um, whereby that could potentially put them into like a market leader position. Um, and uh, last but not least, there's also the uh, nice to have, which is that it's it's a need, but it's not quite as painful. Um, and, and therefore, it'll be slightly harder for them to monetize. So by understanding where businesses are in these uh quadrants, we will then be able to sort of advise them what sort of um, strategies are more likely to be in a profitable position. Of course, um, my own background, uh, I started off with environmental management, um, and it was a science degree. But and in, interestingly enough, it was actually trained, it actually trained me more in ecology. So I came from very science background, um, and even did studies on pitcher plants, <laughs> um, studies on frogs and um, various uh, ecological uh, aspects. Um, and with that sort of background, I was at a crossroads of whether to pursue an academic realm or to actually move more into the management realm. Um, now, personally, I've, I've always liked the academic realm, but um, I, I couldn't see myself um, just purely sticking to one lingo. Um, so I ended up moving more into the management realm and thankfully uh, got into a, a research officer position for a company that was actually doing um, planning and economic development, um, mainly for um, the Malaysian government, as well as for United Nations offices like the United Nations Development Program. So that gave me a lot of exposure, actually, in terms of the um, policy and management um, uh, expectations of what uh, environmental <laughs> uh, studies should be like. Um, and after about five years of being in that company, I pursued environmental economics um, to help broaden that uh, um, skill set. Um, and that really prompted me um, 
uh, the prompt for actually doing that was because I was part of the team that wrote the final Millennium Development Goals report for Malaysia in 2015, and was also the team that wrote the first national volunteering review um, for the Sustainable Development Goals, and sort of charting out initially how Malaysia would be approaching the uh, implementation of those goals. Um, so by going to do my, my master's at Cranfield University in 2015, um, I was happily uh, exposed to the circular economy. Um, and that's where I think initially it was considered newish. I think in Europe, since 2010 uh, or 2011, they already started having quite a big strides in pushing the circular economy concept, mainly driven uh, by conversations that was led by Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Um, and uh, in 2015, Cranfield University was already uh, one of the partner uh, universities where they were um, providing talents uh, and opportunity to go to a summer school with uh, Ellen MacArthur Foundation under the Smith MacArthur Fellowship. Um, and that's where we got to meet thought leaders who had uh, contributed to circular economy, including Dame uh, Ellen MacArthur herself, to actually really dive into what circular economy meant um, and challenge the notion of our understanding about it. Um, we met businesses that were already implementing parts of the circular economy. Um, so from there, I uh, came back, uh, I, I mean, I completed my thesis relating to circular economy, came back to Malaysia and basically couldn't do anything about it for a good two years. Until December 2018, I got an invitation by the Circular Economy Club Global um, to host a viewing party about circular economy. And I did a free sort of session um, in Kuala Lumpur, uh, actually Patalijaya, and we did garner interest from people. Um, unfortunately, I guess things changed for my personal circumstances and I had to move abroad. Um, but as the pandemic came in 2020 and the other opportunity emerged, um, whereby um, we found that business owners were looking for a way to get into sustainability, but couldn't quite figure out how. And with pandemic really forcing them to rethink their business models, it was a perfect time to um, relook at it. And that's where ACMF Circular Economy was born in order to provide those types of uh, services. Of course, circular economy, this con uh, word was quite new in 2020 in the A ASEAN context, not only in Malaysia, but across the other ASEAN countries. Um, and uh, we had to run a number of free talks um, on circular economy so that we could raise awareness about this concept. Um, and in that sort of period, we were very happy to see that ASEAN adopted the ASEAN Circular Economy Framework um, as the future development model um, for ASEAN. Um, we also saw that in Europe, uh, they uh, also passed the Green New Deal where circular economy was heavily included. Um, so regulations and policies and all of that were coming in. So um, as we ran those um, free talks, we've realized that a lot of business owners, even though they had green products, who had characteristics of circular economy, um, they themselves were really approaching the market in a very individual way and therefore ended up being caught in a lot of cost competition. Um, whereas in the circular economy, um, there are various business models that businesses could tap into to generate revenue. Um, and unfortunately, when you just come back down to cost alone, um, instead of the performance part of it, um, then these players were struggling. So we, um, 
together with a number of other business owners, decided to uh, establish the Circular Business Association um, based in Malaysia, but we act globally. And we finally registered in uh, May 2022 um, in order to create this ecosystem um, building work so that we could pull together and align vendors and suppliers um, who pro provided solutions to solve the climate crisis um, and create a livable world to actually approach an ecosystem solution together. So instead of waiting for an end client to find these vendors on their own, we would be able to offer to them a suite of suppliers and vendors who understood each other, who had somewhat integrated their product um, so that you could solve the problem instead of just you know, having a mishmash of uh, soup of solution providers. <laughs> Yeah, so um, that's been sort of the the um, direction that we've been moving. I would say that probably ACMS Circular Economy now has um, become a bit of the uh, um, behind the scenes backbone that's really driving the uh, type of products um, that's available um, in the Circular Business Association. Um, we cover things from providing training to uh, consulting. Um, some, sometimes it's not full-on consultancy projects, but a lot of business owners need that hand-holding consulting on the way. Um, and uh, in terms of key milestones, um, we have actually been able to help the association pull together um, uh, a number of memorandum of understandings, um, including um, bridging the um, circle economy content to uh, a company called Go Impact Capital in Singapore, which focuses on the um, sustainable uh, development education, but at the C-suite level. Um, we have put together the MOU uh, with the uh, Malaysian Industrial Designers Association in order to tap into the uh, talents, of course, of industrial designers, but also to upskill them um, from their profession because they would be professionals from this product design, industrial design, but may not necessarily be up to date with what's happening with the circular economy and sustainability. Um, we also managed to pull together another uh, MOU with the uh, Gajah Mada University Indonesia. It's a top public university um, for the MBA program, meaning for the entrepreneurs. And last but not least, also the uh, Hainanese International Carbon Emissions Exchange, um, because we from the association perspective, we are pushing uh, ecosystem domain of uh, vendors and suppliers and ecosystem players for carbon markets and circular economy. It's led by ACMF circular economy. Um, and we, we are trying to create that ecosystem level product um, for them. So those are some of the, I guess, key milestones where we're moving ahead with. Um, we have actually successfully helped uh, uh, Malaysian uh, remanufacturer IT company actually bridge a relationship with Cranfield University to conduct a study and uh, measure the social, economic, and environmental impact of their remanufactured laptops. Um, and in, in order to help them in their sort of uh, communication with the marketing uh, of their their product to potential customers and clients. So there are a number of interesting projects that we're putting together um, moving ahead. Um, the most um, uh, sort of bigger sort of realm that we're also uh, exploring now is in the communications and engagement part of it. Um, in June this year, uh, we are going to London for an event called 
Reset Connect London, where they also truly believe in what we are saying that ecosystem level solutions is what is going to tip um, the world and the economy into the circular economy instead of individuals of silver bullet, um, hyper industry focused um, uh, solutions. Um, so I, I definitely um, hope that y'all can tune in to what's happening at Reset Connect London. Registration is free, um, and Circular Business Association has a booth there. We will be presenting two task force projects. One is on the carbon markets and circular economy to see how we can help as many um, small, medium enterprises um, get ready uh, to tap into the carbon markets and monetize from it in order to help their growing uh, green and circular business become stronger. Um, the second task force that we will be presenting is on communications, marketing, and engagement, um, where we're trying to uh, create this supporting infrastructure to help green companies and circular companies actually have the right services to communicate their messaging over effectively, not only with customers, but also to um, their shareholders, to investors, um, as well as the stakeholders within the ecosystem themselves, and also to collaborators within that ecosystem. Um, so not just the downstream people, but the upstream people as well, um, to make sure that you know this 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 solution is more aligned and well thought out, so that everyone in the ecosystem can be profitable. Ella MacArthur Foundation, whereby the circular economy is defined as a restorative and regenerative economy uh, by design. Now, um, how how do they actually um, break that down further to say, what do you mean by restorative and regenerative? Um, now, if we first look at restorative, is that um, it's very much, you know, trying to Mm, recover in a way the abilities, um, not only the economic system, but also the society and the environment um, to actually um, recover from whatever extraction or usage that it has mm, dealt with. And it might seem odd to actually think that societies are also in need of restoration. But if you look at a lot of societal problems that we have, where communities have broken down, um, and it's very much tied to some form of economic activity, um, then you can see there's a lot of room for healing, right? So in a way, the restorative and the regenerative part of the definition is, is sort of say, how can we create this economic model that in a way heals um, itself as it continues in this activity um, of, of, of growth? Um, so from the three principles um, that uh, circular economy has and by in, in that definition, um, what it means is that Circular economy is something where you basically have decided to design out waste and pollution from the beginning. So it is very much an upstream um, sort of um, act, um, focus rather than a downstream focus. Now, to give you an example, a lot of places are still very much um, pushing for recycling, right, as the, the way out for us to um, reduce environmental impact and to help societies and the economy. Unfortunately, recycling is very much an end of pipe solution. It basically needs to wait for the consumer to finish consuming, so-called utilizing, and then um, dispose of it. And then only you recover whatever it is at the end. So this is very um, characteristic of what we call the linear economy, which is you take uh, resources, you make something to uh, satisfy your daily needs, be it products or services, and then you throw it away, 
right? So it's a take, make, uh, dispose model. That's the linear model. Um, so recycling, to some extent, does need to rely on that linear model to continue to exist because it's so end of pipe um, in order for it to keep going, you see. So you can't really eliminate that concept of waste. Now, in contrast to that, what the circular economy is talking about is that how can we actually um, design in um, these solutions that don't even create waste in the first place. And those things that we consume on a day-to-day -day basis actually play an active role in restoring and regenerating the uh, natural systems that have provided us with those resources. Of course, it's not just natural systems, but also the human systems, the societal systems, the economic systems as well, that have provided that infrastructure for us to have this sort of material, nutrient, and value um, and also monetary flows um, that, that keep the system going. So if you sort of imagine it very similar to the natural world itself, um, you see, if, if a fruit tree actually produces a lot of fruit, um, is it actually waste when the fruit drops to the ground? It's not, because those fruit actually can go back into various food chains, um, enter back into the soil, provide nutrition for a number of various other organisms before it's cycled back again into, you know, eventually the tree producing the fruit again. So this whole idea of waste actually doesn't exist in the circular economy. And therefore, um, working further upstream, how can we even create those types of products that's um, safe to go back into the cycle that is um, meant to be continuously going back into the cycles? I think we draw a lot of inspiration from the natural world. And that's a very critical component of the circular economy that we work upstream. That's why the whole designers community, the product designers, food designers, all of that become like a, a very important part of the circular economy engagement, um, because if we could avoid all of this from the beginning, then we wouldn't need to think of the end of pipe solutions like uh, recycling or let's say attaching some sort of device to the cows so that the methane doesn't get released into the air. <laughs> um, uh, if someone is asking you what is the contrary to that in the circular economy, um, there we have actually seen farmers um, have business models whereby just keeping the grass um, pastures uh, much longer actually leaves room for microorganisms to um, that can break down methane <laughs> um, to actually live there, and therefore the methane problem of those uh, cattle ranches actually much lower compared to a very industrial linear model of treating uh, cattle production. So that's principle number one, design out waste and pollution from the beginning. Now, the second principle that the circular economy is about is keeping products and materials in use for as long as possible at its highest utility. What that means is that if you, let's say you had a laptop, um, if you think of it from a linear model, it will be that once I finish with my laptop, I dispose of it. Maybe there's some recovery of the um, components of it. Um, we, we, we sort of break the whole thing down. We extract whatever metals we can, and then the rest is thrown away. But from a circular economy perspective, if that laptop has the ability um, to continue functioning as a laptop, we don't want to actually be breaking it down because a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a lot of water um, emissions and things like that were actually already put in to create this laptop in the function that it had. 
So how can we put in um, uh, some functionality that can keep it longer in its life cycle, give it more chance to perform as a laptop before we even need to break it down? Um, and that's where it opens up many strategies from sharing strategies um, to even refurbishment to just, you know, touch up and make things, as well as the remanufacturing realm where you're upgrading the insides of that product um, to create the, the functionality it has at a higher level. Um, and then if remanufacturing can't anymore, can it go back down into the sharing, user sharing things models? Um, and then finally, when really at the end of cycle and this product can no longer have that utility, can we put it back and disassemble it into its components so that it goes back as components into new products. So you're really trying to cut down the energy and water and all the other input uh, materials that was needed to create that product um, to deliver performance to society. Meaning that you don't probably don't need as many laptops to meet the societal needs of all these people who need digital access. Now, in the so that's the technical cycle, which the circular economy talks about. But we also have the biological cycle as well, um, whereby when we're talking about keeping products in use for as long as possible at its highest utility, the easiest example is looking at food. Now, if food is something that's still edible, then we will want to make sure we keep food as food um, through some form of distribution models to get to people who need food. Um, it's very interesting that in this world today, we produce so much food um, and throw away so much food. And yet there's still about uh, a few billion people who lack enough nutrition and food. So the circular thinking, when you're talking about the biological cycles in the food context, is saying that how can we make sure that food that can still be eaten can go back to people who need it so we don't have to produce so much food? Um, if it really uh, is reaching its uh, end of sort of freshness, is there strategies that we can put in to lengthen its duration? So the fr uh, like converting it to frozen is a very good example. I think in Marks and Spencer's in UK, their bakery sort of French loaves that they can't finish by the end of day is processed um, in order to become their home brand garlic bread that's frozen. Um, if that's no longer possible, can we also work with charities and organizations to distribute that food? Um, what about also looking into creating new foods from it? So I think the pandemic showed a really good example whereby um, the chef's community actually came in. They say that, okay, we have this bunch of food. How can we quickly create food products so that we can serve more people food. Maybe they don't have any cooking facilities in their home. Maybe they are, have food poverty and other aspects and we can actually serve them. Now, if it can't reach that point and it has to become food waste, then the circular thinking then says, okay, how can we make the best use out of food waste as a nutrient component of it before we burn everything? Because very, very often people just think, okay, we'll burn everything to generate energy um, or we just throw into composting and that's it. But the circular thinking says that, okay, what can we extract from it first? Are there, let's say, biochemicals that we could generate from it before it needs to go to composting, um, before it becomes bioenergy? Um, are there a different aspects that we could use this food waste for before we create it. So that's where businesses like Black Soldier Fly, um, uh, Larvae, so the creation of fish meal from that, then only from the Black Soldier Fly, you produce compost. And it's all about cascading, right? So if you think of the um, 
biological cycle, it's about thinking of the natural cascades that could happen and trying to increase that flow of that nutrient um, within it. If the technical cycles, it's more of trying to keep those materials and components and parts um, that we've already produced or even products that we produce um, in its best form as long as possible. Um, so the technical cycle is where technical materials like plastics and metals would belong, um, whereas the biological cycle is where things like, um, you know, uh, 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 food would belong. So that second principle, keep products in use for as long as possible at its highest utility. Now, the third principle, which is actually why all of this for, is actually to regenerate natural systems. So the circular thinking from beginning is always challenging us to rethink that system design as to how can we build in so that all the activity that we do in the economy as a human being in society actually leads to the regeneration of the natural uh, systems that provided us from the beginning. So it's not afterthought. If we look at the conventional way that we approach sustainability, it's always that nature is something that we have to conserve, have to protect and almost lock it up and try not to use it, try not to create negative impact on it. And therefore, um, the thinkings of like, oh, I'll cut this out of my lifestyle, cut that out of my lifestyle, I'll live a minimalistic lifestyle, as for example, um, becomes like... Um, the go-to strategy. But for a lot of people, it's very difficult to, to say I'm cutting down more when I don't even have more in my lifetime. So if we start switching that to this whole thinking of how can it regenerate natural systems because I am alive, then you're not actually asking people to cut down per se, but how are you actually accessing those goods and services? How are you actually manufacturing those goods and services to satisfy these needs to grow, these needs to live by people? And that's a very different thinking because it's not about just doing less bad. Circular economy is about positively doing more good proactively, okay? So it's very similar again, uh, based on the inspiration of the biological realm that we live in, our natural world that we live in. You can't ask like, like would you think of mold um, as a bad thing? Most people think of mold as a bad thing, right? Um, or even fungi as a bad thing because it breaks down things. But if we didn't have fungi and it couldn't break down things, then nothing in the world actually could, could, could cycle, okay? Our nutrients would be stuck there. So, it's not about cutting down the negative impact. In this case, if I was mold, my negative impact on this world is that I cause things to break down and no longer be able to be eaten or used, right? But it's about thinking of it from the positive impact that you can create, which is that if I can break down these things in a safe uh, and efficient manner, and because I am alive as mold and fungi, and I'm drawing nutrients from the, the, my surroundings so I can grow, you then see things like mycorrhizal fungi starting to emerge um, in our scientific realm as, oh, wow, they're actually providing back to um, the ecosystem in a very big way. Because it grows so big, it can actually play the role of a wood wide web, not only helping plants communicate with each other about threats um, that, you know, that, that's happening in the boundaries, but also the nutrient flows and things like that. So if mycorrhizal fungi didn't actually extract nutrients to grow that big, 
they wouldn't actually be able to play that function. So it's the same way as looking at it in a way like humans. If I'm already alive, what is it that I can positively impact to make sure it regenerates that natural system it, because I am consuming, because I am alive, because I'm utilizing all these things and not just say that, oh, I can't have any negative impact on this world. So I'm just going to cut this, cut this, cut this, cut this, and my job is done. It's not done. You actually have to go from net zero, so-called thinking, all the way to um, net positive, which is generating positive effects. Yeah, so that's yeah. principle number three, yeah, which is regenerate natural systems. Thanks, Legion. So when you talk about all this economy, as you said, is very linear. And the way we design our products currently is, like you said, uh, we create, we use, and then we dispose. As circular economy is not something that is usual in businesses, how can a company start this process? All right. Thanks for that, that uh, question, Benjamin. Now, coming from the business perspective, I'll say that you always will need to start from how is that going to help your business survive? <laughs> um, so the business business case for circular economy needs to be very clear um, for your organization. Um, of course, there are going to be um, sort of intrinsic values um, that people will talk about, okay, like, oh, because I want to make sure I can leave behind a, a better world for my kids or myself in retirement, um, or I just feel that's my responsibility in society and things like that. Yes, there will be those values that um, companies will need to tap into um, in their, of course, their board, but also their C-suite and their employees at some stage of this circular economy journey. Right. Um, but I'd say for businesses, the business case for circular economy is very important for you to even continue, you know, begin that journey. Because if there's no reason for you to, um, in a way, benefit or profit from that relationship, then your business is not going to survive. And if your business is not going to survive, then whatever positive impact that you wanted to deliver, deliver um, be it through the products that you produce or the operations that you have, um, it's not going to exist because your business is your business is dead. Okay, so when we start um, talking about you know uh, this whole thing about circular economy, yes, there there is things that you need to understand about the concept and and why it would actually lead to um, you know a better world, um, but you do need to understand um, uh, that number one. Profit is very important. You have to plan it into the business case. And number two, that circular economy is about systems thinking. And if you did want to start this circular economy journey, you really have to sort of broaden your mind a bit more um, to start thinking about, uh, you know, business 101, what is the pain they're trying to help society solve? And how can you solve it in a way that follows the three principles of circular economy? When you start thinking in that mind frame, um, that, that's when you will find that there are um, probably solutions that you never really considered or talked about. Um, and revenue, um, sort, of, uh, sort of monetization of revenue sources that you probably never considered before. So there will be a sort of stage whereby, um, you know, you need to basically 
I wouldn't like, I mean, not really brainstorm, but be basically be exposed to different business models. It would be useful if you did have a, a trainer who actually knows a lot of case studies who can share with you the case studies um, to say that, okay, this is some of the examples that different people have been using in order to, uh, you know, tap into um, this whole circular economy think systems thinking. Um, and then from those case studies, generate your own ideas. Say, how does that relate to my core competencies? of my business? How does it relate to my own operations, my own products? And can those ideas actually add to um, either a cost reduction in my business um, uh, or some sort of revenue generation of that business um, or a stronger relationship with your customer base and therefore increasing the lifetime sort of value that a customer provides to your company? Um, or is it something that it can reduce the risk to your company so that you have lowered, let's say, tax exposures or um, liabilities because of uh, climate disruptions and things like that? So for um, a circular economy journey, we actually, uh, ACMS Circular Economy has contributed a seven-step, uh, sorry, a six-step methodology for free. Um, it is available on Circular Business Association uh, .org, um, where you can follow our six steps um, to actually begin getting ready for this circular journey. And if any chance of it that you need help um, in that process, where there's definitely uh, various trainings and consultancies that do provide that handholding service, um, you can come to us if you want to. Um, and they will move you through that process. So I'll say start off first with understanding what is it that you guys are uh, trying to solve in the first place. Um, explore what is in the circular economy realm and basically start thinking, what is, what is it that I can do not only to minimize the bad thing, but also augment all the good things that could come out from the product existing, from the operations existing. Um, and then, you know, really, put it into the 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 sort of um, in a way business terms looking at where the revenue is coming in um, or what is the cost of doing it um, and profitability of it how are you going to uh, attract investors into it um, and and then start exploring all the various tools that's available not just grants not just you know angel investors and things like that um, but also you know um, looking into all the regulatory tools that's available to tip it into your favor. But at the end of the day, all these are in a way like, like top-ups to make sure that you can really get through. The business concept of that circular um, uh, product itself should already make sense. It should already generate revenue. And just to give you an example, um, there was a lot of thinking um, that you know, clothes is something that, you know, a lot of people wear probably a few clothes, um, but keep a lot of clothes in, in, in their closet and don't really do anything about it. And then they dispose of it. And every minute, actually, oh, sorry, every second, six garbage trucks worth of textiles is actually incinerated or thrown into a landfill. And that creates a lot of environmental problems, as you can imagine. So there was some thinking to say that what what if we could create a business whereby um, similar to rent the runway where people would rent, um, you know, uh, designer dresses or suits um, just for their occasion and therefore not need to own those pieces. Um, could we actually design a business model around that for office wear? 
And this was actually a, a company in uh, China that actually experimented with that. Um, unfortunately, because the ecosystem itself was not ready to support companies like this, we found that the business model gradually uh, didn't work and then they ceased operations in two years, right? So this is where from the, the, the business perspective, number one, you need to make sure that, okay, if it was the clothing of office wear, how would you actually generate uh, revenue? It can't be uh, if it's rental, then it is a subscription base. If it is subscription based, then how big a pool and therefore the choice of the cities where you locate your service becomes important. But then you need to figure out, okay, logistic partners who you could work with in order to have that sort of back and forth um, between the clothing in your client, your consumer's hands, as well as the clothing in your warehouse, as well as clothing in your retail area, et cetera. Um, and when you start going into these nitty-gritty details, you can get lost and then become frustrated and things like that. And this is where Circular Business Association basically wants to come in to say that you do what your competency is, which is actually the clothing management part of it, and we will find for, uh, try and put together other players who are necessary to support your business instead of your business paying all of it on your own. So if there were logistic partners who perhaps they have empty space in their trucks as they're delivering um, within the city and things like that, can we tap into that? Um, but then you'll say, how do we even know those trucks have empty space? Which means that we may actually need a data and technology platform provider. Um, for example, like what we know in Malaysia, like Grab um, or things where they can track and trace all of this movement around rapidly and can put orders, you know, for people to move things around, um, that sort of platform may become necessary. So then we need that partner to come into play as well. What about the uh, repair of the clothes and the um, uh, washing and, and cleaning of those clothes? You might actually need a complete different business to do that if your business does not have that co-competency to do it. Because if you don't, then you'll have to be spending a lot of money hiring the talent, figuring out what is the guidelines to do it, what is the processes and all that. I'm not saying it's impossible when you're like big companies like um, Philips Lighting, which is now called Signify, they've been able to develop a lot of in-house and because of that replaced uh, already 15%, at least 15% of their revenue from lighting um, in circular uh, revenue. So they're no longer selling the light bulbs, they're actually selling the performance of having light. Um, and they've integrated it with building energy systems as well, so that people can very easily, through lighting, control the energy usage, um, control the emissions that uh, buildings have. Um, and all of this is built in-house as teams. Maybe they acquired some companies along the way, I don't know about that. Um, but if you're an SME and you're making that circular journey you have to be thinking about how can I, it's not just about the how, but you have to know the who. Who can help you do it together so that we can spread it out, the costs, spread out the risk, um, and, and, and deliver better solutions for the client um, in that journey. So as a company pursuing this journey, you will have to change your mindset about um, you know, your own company versus systems thinking. You need to be more open to actually that collaborative um, part of it. Um, and secondly, um, you do have to build in that, that profitability thinking about how is it that you're going to get back all this good effort <laughs> that you're putting in. Because if your company doesn't survive, 
then all the good impact that you can deliver in the world is not going to last. So I really highly encourage you all to go to see our free methodology. Um, it's just the first step. And, um, you know, do reach out to your, I don't know, local or not local consultancies um, to help you along that way uh, in your circular thinking. Thanks, Legion. As you were talking and explaining about how to get involved into the circular economy, you know, it seemed very unnatural, you know, in terms of how businesses are built. You have to make a definitive uh, intent in terms of wanting to participate into a circular economy. What is that one highlight that exemplifies a successful SME business participating in the circular economy? Now, participating in the circular economy is almost similar to providers when 3G didn't exist, 4G didn't exist, 5G didn't exist in our telecommunications. Either your business is going to be part of the group of businesses that made it possible and therefore tap into to the next trillion dollar business opportunity, or you're going to be businesses that disappear because you didn't keep your eyes on it. Okay. Um, if you can imagine how the telecommunications scene actually changed, um, it happened so rapidly. It wasn't a single product like touchscreen or 3G that changed our world. It was actually a whole combination of ecosystem players that changed it together. And it evolved almost organically. Everyone was feeding on each other's enthusiasm. Now, if your business is not part of that ecosystem, you're not gonna be here in the coming years. And it's not only because climate crisis is something that will affect us all um, in one way or another. From a business perspective, you need to be looking at what is happening in terms of the regulatory and policy world that's going to affect your business. Now, we already know in the European market, they have put forward the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which means that all products going into Europe need to declare how much carbon is embedded inside it. And that's not just what is in that product itself, but all the processes, including the suppliers and vendors overseas coming into Europe to supply the product will need to declare and therefore be taxed on it. So the monetary part of it is actually going to hit suppliers pretty hard because the European importers are not going to be able to absorb it all on their own. And if your business has more than like what, 60% of your revenue coming in from companies who are liable to those taxes and those regulatory risks, then the chances are that either you will bear the burden of that cost or you will be replaced. And we can see how quickly our world can replace companies. If you look at the likes of Kodak replaced by digital cameras, you know, film was out of, yes, maybe there's a bit more for, I don't know, hobbyists, but they've lost the mass market. And interestingly enough, Kodak um, researchers themselves were involved in developing the digital, <laughs> digital realm, but they didn't act on it from a business perspective. And then therefore they lost out. The likes of Nokia that again shrunk rapidly 
when we moved into um, smartphone technology. And again, it wasn't that their researchers didn't get into the smartphone realm, but from a business decision perspective, they didn't pursue it. So I'll say that for companies that are deciding as to whether or not to get into the circular economy, <laughs> um, it's like you're waiting for a wave and you're not paddling at all. So when the wave hits you, you're not going to be the, the surfer that actually gets on the waves and be part of that trillion dollar business. Now, for the companies that are really in, I think that exemplifies um, that they, they've actually been successful in this. Um, is for example, a company that has used fungi to grow um, protect, uh, protective packaging material. So like, you know, when you've received your TV and stuff, it used to come in like styrofoam to protect it from being knocked around and damaged. And this company has been able to um, grow this protective packaging using fungi and agricultural waste. Um, they have gotten uh, support from relatively big companies to replace this in their supply chains. Um, and from there, because they, they are one of the first movers, even though later on there are more and more products that come in, um, they still already have established that presence. Um, and uh, they're ahead in terms of creating um, products that are more customized to their um, clients because that relationship um, and that's something very important in the circular economy. It's about that relationship with your users, with your consumers um, that that is already established. So I think, yes, it can seem overwhelming as to whether or not your business uh, is going to go into circular economy. And you might even say it seems unnatural. But think of it this way. It was only unnatural because we were gotten used to it. <laughs> and there's nothing actually normal about the new normal after the pandemic, right? But now that we've become used to what the new normal is, where there is social distancing, where there's likely to be, you know, bigger spacing between booths at, a, I don't know, marketplace or exhibition, um, and that, you know, travel will have more restrictions, more checks, more this and that. As the world becomes used to it, that's normal. So... For companies making that journey, you have to realize it is a journey. No company in this world is 100% circular. Everyone is still trying to figure it out. And this is why it's such an exciting time to be part of the companies that are figuring it out. Because once you figure it out now and you provide that solution that the world needs because the climate crisis obviously is not going to disappear tomorrow, even with all the renewable energy in the world, then your business is going to be the one earning the next trillion dollar business. I think that really explains why businesses should get involved in the uh, in, and participate in the circular economy. As we all know, uh, businesses are very slow at changing and, and it's better to be in the front uh, and slowly gain competencies, as you said, because it's it's quite complex in terms of understanding the circular economy and how you can integrate it into all parts of your business and, and also your pillars. Sorry, I'd just like to jump in there actually uh, quickly sure. based on what you just mentioned there. Now, it, it to some extent, if you're going to be the companies that are the thought leaders, the, the thought leaders, then yes, you will need to sort of in, in a way inject this all into your company culture, everything, and change 
how you're doing your business. And that's what's happening with the the big big players, right? Like Philips, like H&M, uh, like Danone. They have that very strong company policy and they're pushing it through the company, injecting it into their soul. But when you start working at the SME level, it's not so much about slowly gaining those com competencies per se, but it's that I know enough and then I know who to work with. Yeah, so so in a way, don't don't think about how you're going to build it in house, but who are you going to work with in order to get that sorted? In order for both of you, or maybe three or four of you, to actually be earning um, from it together, so that you know it solves a problem. Um, you don't have that capacity as SMEs. You don't have that budget to be able to develop these things slowly. And the climate crisis, you know, the scientific deadline is 2030. We only have seven years more. Um, before we lock in very harsh climate situation for generations to come, even if we cut emissions by 45% by 2060 or something. Yeah, it won't, it won't matter anymore. We're already faced with a cl harsh climate. So from the SME realm, I would say that it's, it's not so much about trying to, to, to understand the whole thing. Very much it's take one step, see what the next step is. One of the things that the business association is trying to do to help reduce the risk for SMEs is to actually say that this is the overarching vision of how we can see ideas of monetization being put together. And then the association is that that neutral platform to bring together players who are willing um, to, to, in a way, experiment or adjust a little bit their product so it can start tapping into that market as soon as possible. And then once we tap the market as soon as possible, we've tested it, we get feedback, we adjust it again, bring it back to the market again. So it's a very iterative process in a way. Um, and association platforms therefore become important because you want to minimize that risk um, and build that trust in order to create that type of relationship. Um, it's, it's not quite the same as, okay, I need to understand the whole thing about circular economy, do everything in-house, come up with a perfect product, and then we will bring it to the market. That's not going to happen, um, or it can happen, but you're going to be somewhere at the back of the crowd. The people right at the front of the crowd now, in terms of the thinking and the mindset of these businesses, is very much, it's a journey, it's an iterative process. We need to get solutions out to the market as fast as possible, and that can't happen within my own company doors alone, we will need to have this type of profitable relationships with other players in the ecosystem. Everyone earns that money and therefore we can bring the solution faster, test it faster, readjust and the regulatory policy and even technical you know, certification type of things are all changing so quickly. Your goalpost is moving so fast that if you don't have that mindset as an SME, you're gonna find like the circle economy is gonna kill you. <laughs> So, so yeah. Sorry, I just jumped in there because it's it's quite different thinking. No, yeah, I I totally understand. Like even as I listen to you, uh, there's a lot of questions that I am asking. You know, in terms of how can I look at my own business and how can I participate? And I don't even know where to look at. So I think when you when you talk about you know looking at resources like the association in terms of getting on board uh, and, and just starting the journey, so you would know what's happening. I think it's a, it's a very good advice for, for SMEs. Um, but I so, I'm also glad you brought up the CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment, Adjustment mechanism. mechanism. You know, talking about policies like that, uh, this will affect businesses globally. But not all countries have 
moved in that direction and some countries are still lagging behind in terms of not just sustainability but also adjusting to this this new new normal in terms of uh, meeting global targets for and uh, reducing global emissions what can governments do to to you know galvanize this uh, circular economy and and help industries uh, before they are left out yeah so I'm I'm glad you pointed that out because um there's also a very interesting uh study by Chatham House in UK to look at um you know this whole global um scene uh, relating to circular economy and how it could actually be driving sort of um disparity between countries inequalities between um countries as well um and uh, as someone actually pointed out they said that if there's no just transition there's no transition um, so it's it's about like, so I'll be honest to say that probably circular economy doesn't necessarily have to put in the other aspects, let's say just, just transition and things like that. But because if you start thinking at it at ecosystem level, systems level, by default, it needs to be built in because if you don't deal with certain inequalities, then you can't really call it a restorative and regenerative economy by design. Right. So call it whatever you want, but we come back to the fundamental uh, definition of circular economy of being restorative and regenerative uh, by design. And therefore, um, there is actually a push to say that how can we try and make sure everyone can more or less participate in it um, from the the government's perspective, like why would they even want to get into this whole scene of circular economy? It comes back to what pains they're facing. Um, and number one, the Paris Agreement that they signed in 2015 is of course something very strong already because they are liable to legal action and also fines if the country does not meet their emissions targets by a certain date. Okay, that's number one. So Governments would have the impetus to try and deal with this in order to reduce the uh, risk from there. Secondly, as you can say, it's already um, changing how, um, let's say, trade policies work, trade barriers work. And for countries where they have a big trade relationship, not getting into the circular economy is basically uh, sort of suicidal, right? So... In order for them to, uh, I think in the last three years, we've seen a lot of governments actually jump onto the bandwagon to uh, take up some sort of circular economy framework um, because they do see that these two pains um, are, are huge. Of course, you can say, yeah, a climate crisis itself is a humongous reason to do that because a lot of their citizens would suffer from these harsh climate conditions. But not only harsh climate conditions, now we're talking about, you know, basic needs not being met, uh, economic activities being disrupted. People can't earn their income. People can't earn their income means they can't actually um, tap into the monetary realm to satisfy their needs because they can't buy anything from other places that can produce that economic activity. Um, so it's 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 a complete breakdown from um, you know environment, social, and economy perspective if they don't do anything about it. So 
we've seen, um, let's say in the ASEAN region, um, the governments there have adopted the ASEAN framework for circular economy. What they're doing is to try and understand um, what sort of circular principles that can be universal across ASEAN, um, for example, in the remanufacturing realm, so that it can increase the efficiency of uh, trade of these parts and products and all of that uh, remanufactured items um, to satisfy the uh, digital needs of ASEAN without creating more um, problems. Um, that's something that they have put in place. Uh, regulatory uh, action is, is also being drafted so that countries can actually do that. I think they bear a lot of um, pull factor from countries that are really leading ahead. So like in China, um, you'll be surprised, but just because we don't hear much of it, but there's actually a lot of development from there to move ahead from the policy and the regulatory frameworks. And that actually pushes down from the financial part of it, financial institutions being regulated into the companies that have to comply and therefore into their supply chains. And that's a global thing, right? Um, so in order to to... There's sort of like two ways to look at it. Number one, yes, government needs to support these companies by perhaps through their grant processes, by setting up the infrastructure. Let's say in Bursa, Malaysia, um, you know, they, they, they got the mandate from the government to set up a voluntary carbon market so that more companies could participate into it. So it's these type of infrastructures that is needed for companies to participate um, at a national and and global levels that only governments can provide mandates to do, right? Through licenses and regulations and things like that. But at the same time, um, you know, you have to think of it that the government needs a lot of support from the private sector as well, because before they can sign off, let's say some sort of policy or some sort of rule to say that all, all of this needs to go, let's say in India, now they've said that, okay, single, single use plastics is no more, right? And it was a change between this day and this day. A lot of businesses were like, how am I going to cope? My whole business is going to collapse. I can't pay for my staff and employees anymore because my business is gone in an instant. So there needs to be that transition phase before governments can actually you know, implement a lot of these policies and regulations. But in order for that transition phase to be more palatable for the society and economy to absorb the private sector, in a way, needs to be ready with the products and services that's tested in the market to be able to say that there is that alternative that can work. And if there needs to be some sort of, I don't want to say subsidy, but sometimes, yes, there's some sort of subsidy or an unfair advantage through grants, through um, regulation or policy that governments provide, let's say through green government procurement guidelines, let's say through taxes and carbon taxes or pollutant taxes um, and those sort of things that government only can do, the private sector needs to be ready already to say that, yes, we can absorb that, take that unfair advantage, and we can supply right away. Because if you can't supply right away to a market that is now faced with a regulatory problem, it just ends up that that regulation is on paper and no one can implement it. Or if they do implement it, a lot of people suffer and you create more problem and therefore a whole backlash that, oh, this isn't going to work. This is just going to kill our jobs. This is just going to kill our livelihoods. And therefore we reject the whole thing about it instead of accepting it bit by bit and therefore changing um, their lifestyle. Now, another thing that I guess I like to point out at this point is that a lot of people believe that everyone needs to understand the circular economy before their lives will change in that direction or every business needs to understand it. No. <laughs> if you look at, again, the telecommunications scene, 
we don't need to understand how 4G works to use 4G. We don't need to understand how the smartphone actually works. We just know how to use the smartphone in order to to change. And it changed our world in less than 10, what, 10 15 years um, from analog all the way digital to, to, to pressing Symbian phones to smartphones. It changed so rapidly. So the same thing is going to happen in the circular economy as well as all these various climate action in that you just need to let those people with that so-called money power position to change and that it meets the user's demands in a better way and it will happen very quickly. So governments in that role is actually to continue facilitating that relationship between the, the uh, stakeholders. But at the same time, within the private sector, as our associations also putting forward, is how can we already facilitate that to be ready for when the government says that, okay, now we have this thing we're trying to implement. Do you have a solution? And we can say, yep, we have the whole suite of companies that can already deliver it across regions, uh, across geographical locations at affordable price. Uh, well, affordable, maybe government, you need to help us a bit because the linear incumbents basically have too much benefit at this point. Tip the balance over to us and we'll be able to deliver. And when I speak on that perspective, I'm not saying that you just have to play in your own country. As a business involved in this whole circular product or climate product, you need to be thinking beyond your own uh, country itself. Maybe, yes, you have chosen to play in this world, but there are other ways to monetize from it. Could you be, let's say, uh, doing some form of licensing of your system to another company to supply in another region? Maybe you want to have some form of royalties set up in order for more people to adopt your um, solution in other places, for governments to be able to tap into it and have a local provider. Um, so we're not saying just do it for free because you are you know, kept in your own country or your region, but you have to become creative about this in order for your solution to really get to that scale. And again, this is where um, neutral bodies like associations, like networks become important for you to even, number one, know that there's that possibility to do it that way. And number two is that once you do know that possibility, who can you start potentially uh, working within that journey to make it happen. So governments, yes, play an important role, but there's also a lot that we can do in the private sector to meet them um, in order to get that scale. Before I ask you about your outlook in terms of the future for a circular economy, I want to go back to something a bit more topical. Um, you, you spoke about the carbon markets. How does the carbon market fit into the circular economy? Uh, opinions on, on the carbon markets. I'm glad you pointed that out because uh, ACMS Circular Economy is leading the task force in the Association for Carbon Markets and the Circular Economy. Um, we view the carbon markets as a very uh, powerful tool. It's just a tool um, in order to create an unfair advantage for circular economy providers. Okay, so um, the money is really there. Actually, it's it, there's trillions of of dollars actually floating around. Um, and a lot of these investors have no idea how to actually get that money to companies or, or projects that can do something about the climate crisis. So how we see it is that if we could build up that uh, ecosystem domain of all these suppliers that help companies tap into the carbon market, the carbon provider, uh, sorry, the circular providers that help companies reduce, avoid, or store away carbon are at that advantage to actually, you know, um, get that money. 
if you get what I mean. Now, of course, the carbon markets has a lot of barriers at this point in time. Number one, the trading volume is huge. Um, it's in tons, millions of tons, which makes it that if your company is not helping to reduce millions of tons of carbon, then chances are no broker, no project developer, and no registry is really interested at this point to have your 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 carbon uh, product, right? So they wouldn't have credits that you can trade. Um, number two, there's a lot of opaqueness in how carbon markets actually function. Um, it seems like the registries don't they just issue the credits, but who is doing the buying and selling? It's very much the brokers. How much do the brokers charge? Is it what is received by the project owners? There's a lot of opaqueness. And we're starting to see more and more um, sort of technology companies using blockchain to try and penetrate into that market to like say that, how can you use blockchain technology to increase the transparency of credit buying and selling instead of just buying to uh, offset are there, there's already a new breed of um, investors that are buying so that they can sell that credit on to another company and therefore make a margin on that. So there, then, you know, these, these things are barriers to SMEs. Most of the time, circular providers still SMEs from entering and tapping into the carbon market. Now, there is a, a ecosystem diagram, which will be on our website if you look at our task force program uh, projects. And it shows that when companies are uh, thinking of monetizing from circular uh, from the carbon markets, even if they are a circular company, number one, they do need to figure out what is their uh, emissions. Um, are they actually a net emitter still, even with their product? Or are they actually being able to perform uh, additional service of storing, reducing, avoiding carbon for other companies? And once you figure out that part, which is all the assessing actually your own carbon status, then only you can start talking about, okay, how do we, uh, the strategy implementation part. The strategy implementation part is where all of these suppliers and vendors who have solutions, therefore can help other companies to solve it. And then once they've solved it, actually implemented it, now that there's a next stage of suppliers and vendors, because you need to find a project developer who would help you do all the assessments and put it in documentation that's submitted to registries. You need to work with registries who may not even recognize the methodologies from circular businesses as a way to produce carbon savings reduction. Um, so we have to work with those assessor companies as well so that they can submit the methodology so that it's validated, verified, approved, accepted by the registry. Um, and then once the registry accepts it and issues the credits, then you have to deal with all the exchanges who is actually buying and selling. Um, so there could be the uh, so voluntary carbon market exchanges like the Hainan International Carbon Emissions Exchange that we are collaborating with. Um, there could also be um, you know other forms of um, brokers that's already existing. Um, and then the whole question comes back, how am I going to afford this? So then there's another breed of exchanges that's emerging, like the London Stock Exchange, where they're saying we're not actually being an exchange of selling credits, buying and selling credits, which they exchange of investors who are looking for projects that they can invest money in so that they secure those credits for their future use, right? So that's a different sort of exchange. So in that sense, because the, the circular economy players are in a much better chance of helping reduce, avoid, and store carbon, in fact, they should be the ones actually benefiting the most from the carbon markets in order to top up whatever money to keep them, you know, growing and expanding and all of that.
because this is still a lot of early stage things. As I said, the goalpost is moving so quickly. They do need those resources to keep going. And if we can actually tap into the carbon market that's already spent, what, 25, 30 years to develop, to get that money into these companies as soon as possible. That's another tool in their toolbox that can help them. So it's just a tool. It's not the be all and end all. Um, there are many other tools that we want to use to create that unfair advantage for circular economy players. So I think I opened a can of worms asking about the carbon economy. I think we could go on a whole podcast by itself on the carbon markets. <laughs> Uh, but coming back to to the your outlook, uh, how optimistic are you about the future of circular economy and and its impact on global sustainability? I think I'm very optimistic about the impact of circular economy in terms of the uh, global direction um, to pursue sustainability and climate action. Um, the reason why I'm very optimistic about it is because from the concept itself of circular economy, it uh, resolves a number of uh, conflicts that the traditional so pathways. So if you think of circular economy as a pathway, um, it, it resolves a lot of uh, conflicts that the conventional approach uh, has. Now, um, number one, uh, we have to recognize that renewable energy is not going to deliver the the, the emissions reductions that we need at the fast enough pace. Um, it only covers 55% uh, of the emissions. 45 of the emissions is actually you know, embedded in how we make and use products on a day-to-day -day basis as individuals and as organizations and businesses. So that's number one. Um, you do need a pathway to deal with that part of how we make and use product. And a circular economy thinking is very well adapted to that. Um, the second thing is that um, the circular economy resolves this whole need about um, you know, making money as well as the positive environmental impact and societal impact that's necessary. We look at the sustainability realm, there's the environment, social and governance perspective of it. Um, from the environment perspective, of course, it's really built into circular thinking that is regenerative and all that stuff. Um, but also from the social perspective, because there's this whole systems thinking and need, needing to actually, in a way, feed uh, the system in a positive, virtuous cycle. Um, therefore, you can't really move away from, let's say, dealing with, let's say, gender equality or, uh, you know, safe working environments or uh, decent economies or basic water supply and those sort of topics that emerge in the sustainable development goals. Um, and number three is that uh, the governance perspective becomes also very important because circular economy is very much you know, tracing and tracking a lot of movement of flows and things like that. So it's almost inbuilt that you have to have good governance in order to do it. So the sustainability agenda for many years has been struggling with its vagueness. A lot of people don't really know what sustainability is and how can you pursue sustainability. And the circular economy, because it comes in very much, you know, saying that, you know, this is how we're going to pursue it. These are the three principles that we're going to apply to it. And there needs to be that business case in it. And these are the different business models that you can experiment with. Um, it becomes clearer for a lot of companies um, and even uh, localities to say, this is how we're going to participate in sustainability and climate action. Apart from this whole like, okay, we just need to, 
you know, feel guilty, um, <laughs> reduce our negative impact in this world. It's actually opening up this entire new chapter of say, how can we use our ingenuity and our innovation and that hope of a better future to place it into this 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 um, framework of thinking so that we can create a regenerative and restorative economy by design. I think it's it's by the fault of that, that flexibility that circular economy provides and that injection of hope and that push for innovation and this just human intrinsic trait, you know, to to be curious, to 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 disrupt that status quo, to find a better way of living our lives. Um, uh, that circular economy really brings in rather than the guilt-driven, there should be no discussion of profit, this is a noble cause, this is your responsibility sort of narrative that we see in the traditional sustainability uh, approach, that the circular economy will become more and more important as we pursue sustainability goals. Um, we're already seeing a lot more momentum being built up. You would have thought that the pandemic, um, and now we're in the uh, sort of pre-recession or stagflation sort of situations, bear market, everyone's you know, like, what should we do with our business? In a way, it's the perfect opportunity for a circular economy to replace uh, the linear economy because the linear economics infrastructure and system can't hold on anymore. It's breaking down on its own. And now is not the time to like say that, oh, we'll wait and see till it breaks down fully. It's actually to take a more uh, a proactive stance to say that how can we break it down even faster by replacing it with something that works for people on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so um, I, I, I mean, my co-founder likes to say, we're actually in a war against the leaner economy. It's not between the circular providers. It's, it's between circular and leaner in order to shift that, that approach of how we will achieve sustainability and climate action um, uh, quicker, faster, and that makes sense for everyone because everyone's livelihoods is dealt with and the way of life is dealt with. In the traditional sustainability narrative, you're very much just dealing with the way of life, but you can't deal with the livelihoods um, part of it. So in that sense, um, I feel very optimistic about the journey that circular economy itself will pursue. Is it going to be the one all and end all that will get us to a much better world? I'll say no. There probably will be a better framework that comes on as we pursue it further down the line. But at this point in time, the circular economy does play a very important role to get us further ahead. Um, and we need to be open to, to accepting that. Um, and pursuing that journey so that we can actually see what is that next step, what is that next framework that will get us to an even better world. Before I let you go, I have one last question. Uh, it's a personal, um, uh, in, something I'm interested in. So the linear economy and, and, and you know conventional economies currently are talking about uh, degrowth, uh, decoupling, development, and, and growth. How does circular economy, you know, uh, address this, this concern. It's very interesting that you raised this point, considering that LinkedIn yesterday just gave me a feed about degrowth and circular economy. <laughs> it must be Google or someone listening to us or something. <laughs> but anyway, uh, on a more, uh, slightly more serious note, um, I can't speak for all circular economy practitioners. And I definitely am not speaking on behalf of Ellen MacArthur Foundation or the fellowship. So this is going to be my personal opinion about it. 
I personally feel that there's no way to be growth per se. And circular economy um, is about decoupling. It's about decoupling. But it's not, not decoupling from, from growth. It's decoupling from how we deliver growth <laughs> um, in that sense. So if you look at the natural world, anything that doesn't grow basically is dead. So everything grows. Everything needs to extract some form of nutrients, some form of service from other things in order for it to function. And because it's growing, like the tree, because it's growing, it can continue to perform a service for other things, which is like absorbing carbon, stabilizing soil, and things like that. If that tree did not grow, did not extract those nutrients and water and all of that, it would not be able to perform its function. So if we look at it from a human perspective, if we all were in that mentality that I should not be growing, I should not be utilizing, I should minimize my life to a point that I don't leave any impact in this world, then my question is, are you really alive? And if you're going to be alive anyway, then why can't you think of it like, I'm going to be alive, use all these things, of course, in my life, but because I'm alive, generate more positive impact from it while minimizing my negative impact as much as possible. Yeah. So you can't really degrow from that. Um, of course, if you talk from the government perspective, then, you know, it's not about... Yeah, I know a lot of people say, you know, chasing the GDP is is like not the right way to go. Yes, I don't think it's the only way that we should be judging performance. There's a lot of other ways to judge performance. But at the same time, you know, it's still an important part of it to understand economic activity and also to understand how people are making their livelihoods. And therefore, from the government's perspective, you can't really stop growing. Um, but what is growth that's enough to satisfy that so-called livelihoods and needs of your citizens, um, that's a different matter because there could be a different way to deliver on that. And that's where circular economy starts saying there's an alternative way. There's an alternative way. It's not just saying we should cut out everything in our life, but saying that how can we deliver the same performance or not the same, maybe even better performance um, and live better lives, but just deliver it differently. So, and uh, I mean, coming back to the example of that cow, you know, a lot of people say don't eat beef and all of that. Yes, cows are, produce a lot of methane. Yes, they are a big problem. But how we have been, um, you know, raising cows, <laughs> dealing with cows. Um, if you look at the farmers who have actually switched to more regenerative type of husbandry, where it includes pasture management, and they've seen the pastures recover, um, the uh, you know the lands are not degraded as much, the uh, soil erosion is not as bad, water tables recover, and the cows are very much part of the solution. They're not the problem. It's just how we've been uh, moving the cows around the pasture. Uh, have we been allowing them to behave like? in the wild where, you know, grazing animals are in tight groups um, and therefore they move from place to place as tight groups. We haven't done that in our industrial way of treating cattle ranches. So it's not that cow and beef is bad. It's just how that beef actually came about. And of course you can say, yes, regenerative beef is now very expensive. Then my question is that, 
yes, it is expensive, but what are all the systems um, players that part of that doing in order to help bring down that cost? Um, you know, it, it's like the first handphone, which was like a brick of sorts. That wasn't cheap, <laughs> you know. But how did how did the system actually adapt? And and you know, because of this whole idea that it should become normal, everyone should be able to have this thing. That's why we moved in the direction to create all the different technologies and all the different business models to make it work. So if if you're saying regenerative is always going to be expensive, I don't think so. I just think not all the system players are in place to be able to make it uh, affordable. And and therefore, this whole growth or degrowth self-debate becomes in a way like, why are we even debating about this in the first place? Being alive is about growing. <laughs> we grow up, we grow old. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I really like your your perspective on, on this whole degrowth topic. Um, I'm a member of the International Society for Ecological Economies. Uh, and then, you know, I'm a follower of Herman Daly and his, uh, you know, his, his thought process of, of, ecological economics and but it's really good to see that that circular economy thus answer the the main question brought out by eco, ecological economists is is when is growth when does uh the the cost of growth outweigh its benefits so but i think you really put that into in perspective in terms of growth you know trees grow they provide so much benefit in terms of the surroundings so you know, Legion, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I thought that was really uh, informational uh, and as well inspirational uh, in terms of uh, the outlook of of, of the world uh, with circular economy. Uh, thank you for, for coming. Benjamin, do you think I could just add like one more comment to that? Yes, sure. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, just when you were talking about, you know, this whole thinking of growth and things like that, having been in the environment scene from very young, from like nine years old, and therefore like gives me 20 odd years of being involved in the environment scene. I'll say that a lot of people in the environment scene do feel a sense of helplessness, um, that they're insignificant in terms of the impact that they can generate. I've gone through my motions of, you know, NGO volunteering work, activism work, um, public policy work, and now into, you know, business realm. Um, I think it, we do, those who are so-called so who have stuck to the environmental scene have definitely gone down the rabbit hole of feeling like this is pretty hopeless, you know, <laughs> not going to change. This, you know, uh, it's it's not going to deliver the impact that we need. But this is where I felt like circular economy really opened my mind um, in that sense, not just from the technicalities of all of it, but really the narrative that it was bringing. Um, and when I became a mother in 2020, and that was already a very big personal conflict because, you know, obviously we have always said, you know, human population is, uh, you know, growing too much and that's the whole problem of the world. That's why we're in this environmental crisis and all of that. And so how do you resolve that, you know, as a person? who wants a family life, how do you resolve that? And the circular economy, therefore, uh, in a way, was almost like a enlightening route for myself because it wasn't that you don't have kids and you don't have this and you don't have that. You should feel guilty that you can't deliver more impact. But it's really saying that, like the butterfly effect, every little effect that you put out to the world, you know, 
is going to replicate into something else. It might not be immediately where you can see, but because you're continuing to act, because you hold on to the active hope that this thing can change. And as a parent, you know, seeing that I have a way to actually create a better world for my child and to experience the world in a different way without all that fear, without all that guilt, I think became a very strong um, driving force for myself to actually embark on this journey. So I'll say that um, uh, just a last piece for those of you who maybe you feel you're struggling, you can't find where your place is in this sustainability, climate, environmental realm. I'll say, please be open to explore the circular economy um, and don't suffer alone. Please reach out to uh, associations because as more professionals in your respective sort of roles, be it an accountant, a tax person, or your manufacturer or whatever, um, you have a role to play and you can do something about it. Maybe it's not obvious to you yet. So please come reach out to us and we can go on this journey together. Um, it is a rabbit hole that you can come back out of. And the faster that all of us come back out of it and work together towards it, um, then I think we will be able to 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 move ahead. So tap into that passion. Even you're a business owner, tap into that passion. If you care about people starving, there is something you can do from the climate perspective, from the circular economy perspective. Thanks, Lijin. Um, just for our listeners, um, the description, uh, the link to Circular Business Association will be in the description below. Uh, it's a circularbusinessassociation.org and uh, you can get in touch with Chin Lijin, the founder of the association. Thanks for having me, Benjamin. It was a pleasure.